So, let me pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning that we have to come before you, to worship you, to, to honor you. So, Father, we most thank you because uh, you have given us this morning to come to get from you. We come as dependent people with open hands, bringing nothing but our need. We ask that you help us to believe that. That we don't come here to worship. Convincing you or proving to you. Help us to believe, Father, that we come to get from you. Because we need from you. Pray that you will give us hearts that receive and trust and hope and believe. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, you need the gospel. You didn't need the gospel, past tense, right? You need the gospel. You didn't get the gospel back then somewhere like, um, I mean, when you were a really bad person and you realized it and then you heard about Christ and you trusted him, right? That's when you needed the gospel. That's not only when you needed the gospel. You will always and forever, well, let's, let's see, yeah, well, until Jesus comes back. You will always need the gospel. There is no time at which you will not need the gospel. You don't bring people who don't know Jesus to come hear the gospel. You come hear the gospel because you need the gospel. Now, some of you may be going, yeah, duh. I already knew that. I learned that a long time ago, right? Okay, but you do get that that was not like the common parlance not too long ago. I don't think I've said this before up here. But, okay, you do, like if you do a Google search, have I talked, to, have I said this before? No? If you do a Google search, well, I've only been up here twice. If you do a Google search, right, so you wouldn't remember anyway. If you do a Google search on gospel-centered, Christ-centered this could be funny. Anything. If you just do a Google, I mean, or let's say uh, Amazon, go to Amazon. Google, I mean, and then search gospel-centered, Christ-centered. The earliest thing that you are going to find, you know when it's going to be? It's like 2003. I mean, there's some earlier stuff, but it was the kind of stuff that like a small, I mean, not a small, well, a smaller group of people. It's stuff that wasn't really mainstream. 
right? That's 13 years ago. Now, I'm get, I feel like I'm getting old enough that now that I can say, you know, I remember when. You know, you people think this is just common, but it wasn't always so, right? You walk into any bookstore today, any bookstore, well, any Christian bookstore, you're going to find rows and rows of gospel-centered this and Christ-centered that. It's become common. But it wasn't always like that. I remember when we lived here in 99, uh, well, 90, well, we got, we got married, Tracy and I got married in 95, and we lived in Denton. And then we uh, eventually moved back here for me uh, to be a youth minister <laughs> uh, at First Baptist First Baptist in Greenville, right? So I did that for two years. I was horrible at it, but I did it for two years. And so, um, but during that time, I distinctly remember this, and it was the strangest thing. It feels like it was a million years ago. I would listen to, I would listen on the White Horse Inn. Everybody heard of that? White Horse Inn, it's like a, a reformed uh, podcast. And it was going on like, you know, well, before there were podcasts, really, because it was on the radio. But they had uh, Michael Horton and some other guys. And these guys would talk about the gospel. And I liked a lot of you know, some cool stuff, you know, talking about, you know, God's glory and, you know, his sovereignty and all this stuff. Okay, I got all that stuff. But they start talking about the gospel. And I, would always, and I remember wondering, you mean like preaching evangelistic sermons? Is that, is that what you mean? But Tracy, when we moved here, this, this is like early, like 99, 2000, listening to, to these guys. And again, they would start talking about preaching the gospel. Like in church, just like as a normal thing. You just preach the gospel, and you need the gospel. And I was totally confused by this. Because up to that point, and this may be the case for you, because up to that point... What I knew, what, what, what I had, the frame of reference that I had for the gospel is that that was like um, when you had a revival and you're going to preach the gospel so that people can get saved and come to know, you know Christ. That, that's, that's the frame of reference that I had. It was this incredible hump to get over to really grasp that I needed the gospel. But I'm already, I'm already, I've been a Christian for a long time. Why do I, isn't that just going to get old where we, you just hear the same thing over and over and over again. Why would I want to hear Jesus died and raised over and over again? I don't, isn't, I mean, aren't we supposed to go on to bigger, bigger and better things? The difficulty with that, the real difficulty with that, when I, what, what I started to realize was that, particularly in the culture, the church culture that I was in, I don't know about yours, so I'm not going to like impugn everybody, but the difficulty with that was that subtly, subtly, real rest, really, your only rest came from Getting it done. I can't tell you how many, you know, campaigns 
and new stuff that we were latching on to, grabbing hold of. We're going really, to really put it on now and get after it now to show God how much we mean now. Demonstrate to God how repentant we are now, how committed we are to go and, 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 and spread the gospel now. How committed we are to holiness now. I mean, it was like this endless sort of cycle. It was like, it was like walking on a treadmill, or really running on a treadmill. And it was tiring. Because somehow, it always felt like, it's never enough. Is it ever going to be enough? I mean, I feel perpetually like, Horrible. Like I'm not gonna. I'm not. I'm not getting. I'm not doing enough. And this one guy, he had a really. He got a cute phrase for this. It was called the soft law, right? Because we weren't ever. Nobody was ever saying, "You better. You better do this, or Jesus isn't gonna love you." Nobody ever said that. That wasn't the message. I mean, and nobody would have, I mean, at least in, in the circles that I was in, nobody would have ever said, we got to work to earn our salvation. Nobody would have said that. But functionally, it became that. That's what we were all doing. We were working. I remember one, one phrase, and y'all may have heard this. You know, you heard it at camp, right? You go to youth camp. And so... The guy would say, you know, every now and you know, every now and then we need to look in the rear view mirror so that we can see the cross. But then we need to put our eyes on the road. And go forward. Right? Now that guy, whoever he was, wasn't saying you gotta earn your salvation. If you, don't, if you don't work hard enough, Jesus isn't going to love you. That's not what he was saying. But effectively, that is precisely what the message communicated. Functionally. Right? Now, 2001, 2002, when some of these things were really starting to hit more mainstream. Like mainstream bookstores, you start hearing it more, well... A little bit later, start hearing it more on the radio. That was all new to me. You may have been in circles where it wasn't new. You were fortunate. But, you know, Trace and I were working with college students. We were going to, you know, the conferences. You know, all of this story of redemption, God's grand narrative and redemptive. Nobody was saying that stuff. Back then. It's all pretty common now. In fact, it's so common, maybe some of y'all weren't shocked. Some of y'all were like, wow, that's weird that that was going on back then. They were saying that stuff. Gee. You know, what an idiot. What was he doing? Well, be careful. Because it's important. It was important to say then, Right? And it's, port and it's still important to say now, maybe for a different reason, because it is so common. 
It is common. So common that you can forget, why do we need the gospel? And I want us to see that from 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And really, we're just going to really look at verses 3 and 4. And then I want to just take a quick shot at 5 through 9. Just so we can put all this stuff together. I want us to see sort of the central, the central argument that Peter is making in these few verses is that you know, you need the gospel. I want to try to show that relationship. And then I want to spend the rest of the time, just it's more illustrative. We're going to look at several verses, trying to, I guess, sort of unpack to figure out how Peter's main point here would work out. All right? So 2 Peter chapter 1, it says, um, Simeon, uh, excuse me, uh, um, Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing um, with our, excuse me, with ours by the righteousness of our God and our Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours um, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he has, was cleansed from his former sins. So in verses 3 and 4, that's sort of the whole here. Verses 3 and 4 tell us something really important. It gives a strong explanation of why it is that you and I still need the gospel. Peter says in verse 3, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Right? We've been given all that we need, not just for life in general. The idea here, you know, life and godliness, those two things going together. Paul, I mean, Peter is talking about something more than simply daily living. He's talking about life in the presence of God. He has given us all that we need for real life in the presence of God. Life that, is, uh, that, that knows God and that is devoted to God. Godliness, right? Piety, devotion. I mean, this is an amazing statement that Paul has made. I mean, that Peter has made. God's divine power, right? God's power, divine power, has given you all that you need, all that you need for real life in his presence. But the question is, how has it been given? Um, where does the power to grant life like that show up? 
to the next section of verse 3. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own, I mean, to his own glory and excellence. Right? It's been given by God's revelation of himself. It's been given, this power grants all things for life in the presence of God, devoted to God. It's been given by God's revelation of who he is. But that's not like a list of like attributes. It's not a list of facts about God that Peter's talking about. He's talking about something more specific. It's, God, it's God's revelation of himself as the one who calls a people to himself, right? That's covenant language. That is the knowledge that God puts on display or the revelation of himself that he puts on display. I'm the one who calls all people, who calls a people to myself, right? But there's more. God revealed himself as the one who calls a people to himself in a particular way. Now, ESV says he called us to his glory and excellence, which I can't understand, and there are lots of commentators who are saying the same thing. I'm not sure why that is, because, uh, and maybe your translation does this differently, because that's not quite the sense. I mean, this, I mean the, 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 the Greek preposition that's used really is by. So the idea... And this is the more particular way that God has called, him, uh, called a people to himself. It's by means of his glory and excellence. That's, that is the knowledge that God gives of himself. Not a list of facts, not a list of his attributes. It is a particular one. I'm the God who calls a people to myself, and here's how I do it. I do it by means of my glory and my excellence. The glory, the idea of glory we get, right? God's glory, right? And, you know, all kinds of images used there. The brightness of God. Right? You know, the highness of God. The completely other that God is. Those all capture this idea of glory. But the other word, excellence, sort of, well, maybe synonymous, but it's sort of like splendor or majesty. So this is how, this is, the, this is the knowledge that God displays, that puts on display. But the question is, what is this glory and this excellence by which he calls a people to himself? What is the glory and excellence? Some passages that might fill this in, and I think this brings together some things that you've been looking at, that we've been looking at for a number of weeks now. Ephesians 1, 17 through 20, it says, this is Paul's prayer. He's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable, get this, right, greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to, work, to the working of his great might. What is that? Verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Or Paul, in Romans 6, 4, he says, we were, we were buried with him in baptism 
in, uh, by baptism into death in order that, here it is, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians 4 it says this, In their case, the gods of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We'll get to that, right? For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servant, for Jesus' sake. For, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. This is that glory and splendor or majesty by which God has called him called a people to himself. This is the manifestation of that divine power that has given us all things pertaining to real life and devotion to God, right? This is what it is. This is, what has, this is, this is that knowledge that shows all that God has done by his power. We see it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter is talking about. The exaltation, the resurrection, really the death and resurrection, or really the life, the death, and the resurrection, the exaltation, the gospel, that Jesus is king. That's what Peter is putting forth here. That's what he's trying to say. And he's, this is important to him because this is like his last hurrah, that he's about to die. And of all the things that he could tell them, this is what he wanted to remind them of. This is what he wanted them to understand, that this is the power for all life and godliness. That's what salvation is. It's God's revelation of, of, the, as, as, of himself as the one who called us by this glory and excellence, this resurrection of Christ. Now, verse 4 is really important. Here's where we turn the corner. All of that stuff, all that is given, all, all things, life and godliness, given by God's power, which is this display of who he is in the resurrection. But by which, verse 4 says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. By which, those first two words, they refer back to that glory and excellence, that glory and majesty, this resurrection of his son. By that reality, he has given us something. He has gifted us with something. He has granted to us something. And that is his words to us. He has not granted to us a thing right? A, a thing. He's not granted to us an idea. He's not granted to us a concept. He is granted to us, to us himself by the words that he has said to us. And those words that he says, or that he has said to us, that he continues to say to us, are his promises. By that resurrection, he has opened the door and he has poured out himself to us by giving to us his words to us. And those words to us are his promises. That's where um, uh, 
we see uh, all, that, all that Christ has given sort of doled out. Something that becomes ours, something that's tangible. Not just something we recall, a historical fact, but something that he is doing. I think this gets at the idea. I mean, verse 4 really gets at the idea that Paul said, um, and it's in Corinthians, I think 2 Corinthians. Remember that part? You know, and all God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. Everybody familiar? Remember, heard that one? All God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. This is, this is, what, this is what Paul's saying. All those promises that God has made to his people, they come by way of Christ. And they're granted to us in his resurrection. But those promises, those promises given in Christ's resurrection, here's, there's more to this. They accomplish something. Those promises, those words that God speaks to us as promises, they do something to us. They accomplish something in us. They have a purpose. And it's this next little phrase, right? By which he has granted to us his, uh, his, to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, right? Through them, by means of those promises, that is, uh, inheriting them and acting on them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Two things. You become partakers of the divine nature. And secondly, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What is he talking about? These promises, they hold out something for us. They give to us something. They do something for us. Something significant. They make us partners in the divine order. And, you know, that's not... I think the, the Greek word is apiathos. You know, it's not this kind of taking, taking on the very essence of God, right? That's, that's, that's difficult because he's God and we're not, right? But nature, divine nature, has that idea of order or structure. And simply what Peter is communicating here is that we become participants. We commune. With God. Peter is talking about how we have been ushered into this divine family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are invited in to that, to that ongoing eternal relationship. We are invited in to share in all that is there, all that there is in God. Relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the way it's always been. We get to participate in that. Um, and having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires, we've been brought into that communion because we've been brought out of corruption. This is what, uh, again, Ben has been talking about for a number of weeks. The idea here is that I mean, this is what Peter's communicating. This is what those promises give to us. We have been taken out of old Adam, right? This old body, this old covenantal relationship, this old marriage to Satan. That's what was going on, right? Fall to, to Christ. All humanity locked up in Adam. 
But the resurrection and the promises that come to us by that resurrection are this. We've been taken out of that and we've been placed in Christ, in the body of Christ, in the bride, right? Married to Messiah, right? That is the family that we've been come, become a part of. That is where we are now. And these aren't up for grabs. That's the great thing about these promises, right? They're the absolute kind. I mean, there are some promises that God makes that are sort of like conditional or quali- you know, qualified, you know. And we'll come to this in a second. Maybe, you know, if I'm going to, if I think it's wise and in, in, in what my purposes and my plans are, I'm going to do that. But this is one of those absolute promises. It does not change. It is done. It is what God has given. But he's given it to us through his son. So, yes, we want to say these last two. We just want to summarize what we've seen so far. The importance of the promises here. God's granted to us all things for life and godliness, right? By his power, but that power is put on display. That power is manifested. We see it, or this is synonymous with this, in the revelation of himself as the one who calls the people to himself by the resurrection of his son. And in that resurrection of his son, he pours out to us promises. And our inheritance of them and our accepting of them, our applying those things, those promises... They do those two, accomplish those two amazing things. Again, done deals. We are introduced, connected, now in communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because we've been removed from the corruption. We're no longer in Adam. We're in Christ. Yes, those are done deals for the promise. But these same promises, we hold on to these same promises so that we can grow in those realities, what God's accomplished. Those same promises that come through the resurrection, we continue to hold on to them. We continue to savor them so that we continue to grow. And that's these next few verses. And I'm going to run through these verses really quickly. Just so you can see this point. For this reason, because God has done all of that, right? For this reason, because your heavenly Father has done something, you do something. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, right? And then he goes on with the list of the other virtues. How is, how is what, Paul, what Peter says in 5 through 9 related to 3 through 4? Well, he says that we... Uh, for this reason, because, you know, God does something, we do something. You make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. He says we exert a kind of effort. Right? We, we do, there is something that we do, but that effort is grounded in what he has said in 3 and 4. It says to supplement your faith, but again, that that's, doesn't quite get at, or maybe I guess it could communicate this in some ways, but I don't know that we always take it this way. It's not that you are adding something to your faith. A better rendering of this is by your faith or by means of your faith. 
You produce virtue. You supply virtue. Peter's not saying, okay, you know, you take your faith and then you add, and you know, you shake it up a little bit and then you add this other stuff to it. He's saying all this other stuff that we are to add, that we should be, that we should be increasing in, all of that stuff is by faith or by means of your faith. Virtue being the key one here, right? It's the same verse, it's the same word for that glory and excellence. That word for excellence is the same word, virtue. So it sort of carries this idea of we're to, we're to grow, we're to produce this ongoing uh, development of the reflection of the glory of God that we are as image bearers, sort of image-bearing language. And that's the case with all the other, with all the other qualities, the knowledge, the self-control, the steadfastness, the godliness, brotherly affection, um, and love, all of those things that we're to grow in, that we're to manifest, all of those things are produced by faith. Not, not simply add-ons to faith, but produced by faith. So listen to this last part. Verse 8 and 9. Peter says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If we produce these qualities that Peter has talked about, right? We're not unfruitful, but we're fruitful in the knowledge of Christ. And that again, that takes us back to three and four, right? That knowledge that God has granted of himself. It's the knowledge that is the power of God that has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. You won't be unfruitful if you're producing all of these things. But if you don't produce these things, what's the problem? What's the, what is the problem? What is the core issue that Peter gives if we're not producing those things? The problem is real simple. You're blind or become blind. The problem is that, is that, it, is that it is as though you have forgotten. It's as though you've forgotten. That, you know, you've been cleansed from your sins. That's referring back to First Peter, or 2 Peter 4, 1, 4. It's as though you have forgotten that by God's glory and his splendor, you have been taken out of here, old Adam, and put in here. You have forgotten that you have been removed from that bondage and placed in this freedom in him. The problem is you don't remember. What have we forgotten? We've forgotten the promises that were given in the resurrection of Christ. Do you, see the, do you see the connection? How important these promises are? 
The, the connection between three and four is promises. Do we remember them or do we forget them? In this way, Peter's sort of like a, Mo, a, a Moses in Deuteronomy. I mean, that's, if, you read, if you read Deuteronomy, just one straight through sitting, the theme that you get over and over again, not just explicitly but implicitly, is remember, 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 don't forget. Please don't forget this. Remember, grab hold of this, hold on to this, keep this in your head. Keep this out in front of you. And it's, he, Moses argues that for the same reason that Peter does. Because problems result, we fall down, we struggle, we quit. When we forget, when we don't remember. Psalm 104:24, I think is a good, good rendering of this. Then they despised the pleasant land. They despised the pleasant land. Why? Having no faith in his promises. So these are hugely important. The connection between three and four and five and nine and five and nine is remembering. You produce the fruit with effort. Yes, virtue takes practice. No doubt about that, right? And in fact, let me read you what uh, one writer, he says, virtue in the strict sense is what happens when someone has made a thousand small choices requiring effort and concentration to do something which is good and right, but which doesn't come naturally. And then on the thousandth and first time when it really matters, they find that they do what's required automatically. That takes work, right? That's virtue. That's what Peter is calling us too, in the latter part of verse 8 and 9. But even in, even in this work, this exertion of effort, this doing something because God has done something, that doing, that exerting is dependent on those promises that he made in the resurrection. We are dependent on those promises that power that faith, that fuels that effort, that produces that virtue. This is what living by faith in the promises of God means. This is why we do it. So if you're looking at your life and you're, you're struggling with dealing with yourself, right? Struggling with dealing with wherever you are. Struggling with, with, with growing. What is the central foundational answer? Hold to the promises. So the rest of this, this sermon. Right? It's great. So I get a break, everybody. Okay. You can breathe. Right? So the rest of this sermon. I just want to offer an illustrative sort of view of what, that, of what that might mean. This isn't exhaustive, but I wanted to offer this because, um, particularly because the last time I preached, you know, as one person said, you know, it was really negative, right? Thank you. It was, right? 
So I thought, in fact, I told Ben, I, you know, email one time, I said, you know, maybe I should preach again sometimes, sort of balance that out, because, you know, that's like, maybe that wasn't the best one-shot sermon. Right. Let me crush you. With, right. here's, but here's like the other side of that. Here's like the other side of that. These realities, particularly with suffering, that prepare us, that, that get us ready, that equip us so that we can hold on to him as we go through difficulties. And we'll look at some, if we have time, we'll look at some stuff on sin and, and, and uh, other things. So, so let's just take, or let me say this first of all. Wait, what does it sound like? Somebody, what does somebody sound like? And I just want to give you sort of a, a, an, a, an, um, uh, an example of how you might speak about the promises just so you know that, you know, we're not like doing something, you know, crazy here. And, and also because maybe some of you are a little spoiled by these old-timey um, ways of talking about God's promises, you know. I mean, has everybody, anybody ever like sort of cringed when you read Spurgeon's title of his book, right? You know, the, the Christian's checkbook. <laughs> oh, that doesn't bother anybody? Are you all good with it? I just, I don't know, that's kind of weird for me. You know, there's another old Puritan, and I've, this is where I've getting some, gotten some of these, uh, you know, sort of these directions from uh, Joseph Alling. You know, his, he's got a book called The Saint's Pocketbook. <laughs> I don't, it's just kind of weird because it's like, all right, Lord, I got something happening. Can I just do But that's not what they meant at all. That's not what they meant at all. They were trying to capitalize on what Peter was talking about. You have this unimaginable, infinite provision that you have been given. Why? Because you just so happen to be, have been restored to relationship, not like far-off relationship, but like up-close, up-personal relationship with the God of the universe, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The way has been opened to him. And he is, has not just said, okay, you can come in, but just stay over there. He has said, come here. I have something for you that you need. And it is for your good. So here's how it sounds. Psalm 119, 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promises. Right? The psalmist, he knew the promises. And he's saying, give me your steadfast love. Why is that? Because you promised it. You promised it. Psalm 119.50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Do you say that? Do you talk that way? I don't know. This, this part, this, well, really, maybe the whole thing. But this part is, I'm talking bigger than myself here, okay? Just so you know. Right? There are times where preachers, they preach about stuff, you know, and, you know, they know their, their content really well, but they also know, or I should say, we also know, wow, I don't get this entirely. I don't talk this way all the time. 
Psalm 119.58, I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promises. My eye longs for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? Uphold me according to your promise, that I may live and let me not be put to shame. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Is this this the the, the habitus of your life? Has this sort of liturgy shaped the way, the rhythm of your life? That you would wake and say, where are those promises? I need those promises. Which is another way of saying, I need my God. I need my Savior. Where is he? Uh, last one is Psalm 119, 154. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. This, is a, this both, I think, it gives, exemplifies the way that promises come to shape the sinner of our existence, which is another way of saying our, the gospel shapes the center of our existence, which is another way of saying that our relationship with our Father that we have because we have been united to His Son by His Spirit shapes the center of our existence. They exemplify that, what that might look like, how we might speak directly to God about what He has given, what He has granted. What about suffering? What about suffering? One unlikely promise. How do you view suffering? This is not a sermon on suffering, but this is just an example. How do you view suffering? What has, what has shaped, what has cultivated the way that you orient yourself toward difficulty and pain and affliction and hardship in the world? Right? It, because it happens to all of us, right? I mean, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, it happens to everyone. Suffering comes. Struggle comes. Why? Why is that? Because of the fall. Right? It's our fault. I mean, humanity. Because in Adam, we all fell. He's our representative. That's a, that's a consistent reality, and by, that comes by promise, right? God said it. This is what's going to happen. Boom. Death. All of it enters in. Is it what, God, is it what God's uh, ultimate purpose is? No, we, we know that's not the case because he spent the rest of Scripture telling us a story about how he was going to undo the whole thing. But that is the way that it is. It's there. Suffering is there. But how do you orient yourself towards it? What activities, what ways of living shapes how you understand it and respond to it? Psalm 8 is a promise that may help. 
Psalm 8 says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy of comparing, or worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For, creation, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, that is a fact, right? That is what God has done. But you realize that that way of viewing suffering, corruption in the world is dependent on that promise of your father saying, here's, here's what I did. I subjected this to futility in hope. It's an assurance that he's given to us. I, I know, look around it. It's bad. It's horrible. Yes, but do you see that I have subjected all of this in hope? It's not for nothing. Really, God, it's not for nothing? No, it's not for nothing. I promise it's not for nothing. I promise you, I subjected this to futility in hope. Do, do you talk to God like that? Do you grab hold of that kind of promise like that to orient the way, to help you stand up under the pressure of this suffering and the corruption that sort of uh, uh, intrudes upon us in this world that we live in? That's a promise that he's given. And so we hold on to it. Preferably, and this is what one of the Puritans uh, said that I thought was really helpful, we, we do this before uh, we're in the midst of some suffering. We have a few of these tucked away in our pocket that we have meditated on, that we have nourished ourselves with, so that when it comes, it is there, those promises that he gives. This is one of them. This could be sort of like a head, foundational one, about your suffering. Others that we could point to, sometimes the suffering, God has promised to protect us from it. Right? I mean, we can't escape it, but that doesn't mean that God, we haven't seen him protect us from this. And some of you can testify to this. Psalm 121 it says, lift up, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will never slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper, and the Lord is, your shade on, uh, is the shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. That centerpiece of these verses God's promise. God says to us, look, I'm not going to let your foot be moved. I'm not going to let that happen. You see, you know, you see the onslaught coming. You see sort of the coup brewing in the office where the people are going to somehow undermine you in the place where you work. People are going to try to backstab you, right? People are going to try to take things from you. This is a promise God's saying, I'm going to keep you from that. Right? This idea 
of the sun and the moon. He says, I'm a shade. It's not going to touch you. That's the idea. God's promise to you is, look, I'm, I'm, I don't sleep. I'm always awake. I always see you. I always know where you are. I promise. That's his promise to us. And again, some of you can testify to this. Where there has been something that's come. Whether it's a, a near, you know, fatal collision, right? Or a storm. Or some, or some uh, crossways relationship. You've experienced this where what was, what was intended or what, would, what could have happened was averted. These are the promises that we go to. Another one, Psalm 91, um, because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, um, who is my refuge, uh, who is my, excuse me, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come to your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. That's, this is one of God's promises. You have this access to this Father because you are in Christ by the power of His Spirit. And here's one of the things that He's saying to you. Are you holding on to those? But we can also say this. There are promises where God says, it's not going to touch you. Suffering isn't going to come your way. Right? It's going you know, to be coming, and it's going like, to go around you. But that's not always the case. Does that mean that our faith has failed? Does that mean that God's promises have failed? No, because there are other promises. We believe that the, His promise, that He is going to guide us with all wisdom, with all understanding that he is going to guide us for our good. That that, is his, that that is his intention, that that is his purpose. We believe that promise that he gives to us, that that's, that that's who he is. So when suffering doesn't uh, uh, pass us by, when it's not averted, we have other promises that he's going to be with us through it. Isaiah 43, listen to this. But now, thus says the Lord... He who created you, O Jacob, he who forms you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And then verse 2, listen to this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. You don't, you don't get by the, the danger. You don't get by the affliction or the suffering there. In fact, one of the Puritans had this nice little quip about this. There are, there are, very, few, there are very few sufferings that you can go, go through where other people will not be of help to you. Okay? There are very few of them. But these are two. And here's the deal. If you and I get dropped in the middle of the ocean together, I can promise you this. I can't help you. <laughs> right. 
we're, we're both going to die. We are going to drown. Right? You could have, you could have, look, you could have as many people in that water with you in the middle of the ocean, but if there are no boats, nobody is going to help you. Nobody can be there for you. Okay? In the fire, if we, if you and I were dropped in the fire, guess what? I can't help you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end up being kindling for it to be a lot hotter for you and you for me. So the, in these sufferings where there is, there is nobody that can reach in and touch you, you have this promise, that you have a father because you are in his presence you're united to his son by the power of his spirit, you have a father who says, I will be with you. I'm with you. This isn't going to consume you. Right? I talked about those sufferings in Psalm 88. And with the expression that it, that it does often feel like it's going to undo us. But this is, this is our Heavenly Father saying, it's not going to crush you. It's not going to destroy you. Because I'm with you. Another one, Psalm 23. Everybody knows this one, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, and then verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Okay, we're in it. We're in it. David says, I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And what is, he, what is God doing with David in the valley of the shadow of death? He's a comfort. You have that promise from your father. In the midst of suffering, right? I will comfort you. I'm yours. And this is what that means. Hebrews 13, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we can always say, the Lord is my helper. I don't have to fear anybody. He's not going anywhere. He is with us. And this is the last thing that we can say about suffering and God's promises. He promises to do something with it. Right? And again, this is one of those, this is one of those uh, uh, paradigm-altering uh, moments, right? This is where you see that the practice of keeping at the center of our lives these promises that have been given to us uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we've inherited through him, you can see where this shapes the very way that you orient your life around this understanding of suffering. Here's one, Hebrews 12, 5 through 10. And he says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And in that part of of Hebrews, there's a shift that has taken place because, you know, it says that, hey, look at Jesus who he is like had all of these enemies that have come after him. I want you to see what, what Jesus has done so that you don't become weary. So this is about suffering, the onslaught that just keeps on coming at this Hebrew church. But what does he say? What does the author of Hebrews say to them? Hey, this suffering that you're enduring that just won't quit, that's trying to alter your course, these enemies that keep coming after you, guess what? I'm using that to discipline you. To train you. That's the idea. Discipline there. I'm doing something, something with it. It is moving you towards holiness. Of course, James 1 and 2 says the same thing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Okay, so the testing. It's not like just some abstract idea that's doing the testing. A person is doing the testing. Only persons have intentions, right? Inanimate objects don't. Abstract ideas don't. The testing, who's doing it? It's God. He's testing you. But you get this promise. My tests of you produce this endurance. I promise you, this is going somewhere. That's what your father says. I promise you I'm doing something with this. Or Romans 8, 28, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And what's the ultimate, what's the ultimate that he's got in mind here? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You have God's promise. I'm doing something with this. You are part of a people that I am forming and shaping into the image of my son. I promise you this is not for nothing. This ends, this sort of rounds out that suffering. We started with Romans 8. God's promise that I have subjected it in hope, that sets our course, orients us as to how we sort of understand suffering, how we relate to it. This promise, holding to this promise, enables us to maintain that orientation towards suffering. And we end with where that whole passage was going. What I'm doing with the suffering, I promise you, is conforming you to the image of my son. And in the midst of all of that, he gives the promise of his spirit. Romans 8, 26, he says, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses, but we don't know how to pray. So my spirit himself intercedes for us. You have God's promise of his spirit to provide help by praying for you, by interceding, by calling out for you. By advocating for you. This is the promise that he's given to us. Those are just a few examples over one topic, suffering. That we can, we can kind of see 
how this might work out. But I want to ask you, is this, is this the way you understand how God grows you and establishes you in the salvation that he has worked for you in Christ? Is this, this way of understanding that you need the gospel, meaning that you need all of those promises that you've inherited in the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ? Or, yeah, the resurrection, exaltation of Christ. Are you seeing, are you seeing that all of these little bitty, we could point to other really, really seemingly insignificant things. Are you saying, are you seeing you're, you're always and ever dependent on the promises that he has made to you to move through this life? Well, what is it? What are you looking to? What is, what is holding fast to the gospel, to Christ? What does it mean to you? Is it sort of this past, is it, is it past reality that you look at every so often? Or is it establishing the very core of your existence? We can speak to God this way. We can speak to ourselves this way. All these promises. We can say, God, here's what you said. I'm right in the middle of this. You said that, you said, I'm looking at this world. I've just watched the news and it's hopeless. But you have promised that you've subjected this to futility in hope. Help me to believe that promise. Help me to believe that. Help me to, would you please make that Comfort and console my soul. Our Father, I'm right in the middle of the fire. I'm right in the middle of the flood. And you've promised to comfort me. You've promised to be with me. But can you please help me to grasp that? Can you please? I want to, I want to feel it. Here. What that means, that you personally are with me. You can turn them around. The psalmists do this. You can turn this around. And just imagine for yourself God saying these things to you. You don't fear. I am with you. Wake up in the morning, right? And try this promise, Hebrews 8, right? God's saying, I am yours, and you are mine. That's my promise. I am yours, and you are mine. And you can practice what the psalmist does in other passages. You could talk to yourself. I don't, you wouldn't do it like want to do it in front of people, right? Do it inside your head when you're alone. But this is the way this would work. Telling yourself, you know, going through this great difficulty. I don't, I don't know how to get, I don't know how to deal with this. Well, did you forget? What did I forget? Forget what? Forget what God said. Well, what did he say? That he's going to be with you. That he hasn't departed from you. 
that he's never going to forsake you. That he's going to be right in the middle of this with you. Did you forget that? Yes, I did. Well, let's remember that. Do not forget. This is that practice, that practice of remembering those promises that have been given to us, granted to us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is that practice that helps us come to understand and really embrace what Peter means when he says, God's power has given you everything. All that you need for life and godliness. So, believe it. That's the, that's the charge. Believe it. That's the only do. Believe it. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the promises that you have granted to us in your Son. Pray that you would use your word, these promises, to establish us in your ways. To make us the kind of people that you have called us to be that is conformed to the image of your Son. We pray these things in Christ's name.